Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering six conversations. The first three are complete forms of the three edited interviews that comprised episode four. And the second three are previously unreleased sections from our coverage of Nashtag 2023 in episodes one, two, and three of season four. This conversation comes from my one-on-one interview with Donna Cryer. It starts with me mentioning what I found one of the most striking statistics from the entire Nashtag meeting. The idea that an IQVIA study captured only 200 thousand total ICD-10 codes for NASH in the U.S. population that should have yielded 16 million such codes because it's probably about 16 million patients with NASH. To Donna, this points to a significant need. We have to find physicians that want to treat patients, and we have to energize physicians to want to treat patients. As she puts it, it would do more harm than good to send patients to doctor's offices before the doctors are activated to screen and treat because that'll demotivate patients. I identify a dilemma. If you don't have patients coming to doctors, doctors won't be motivated to learn. But if you send patients to unmotivated doctors, it creates the bad information Luke Donna described. So Donna notes that we can learn from the hepatitis care cascade as a concept, and that at the outset, we need to screen an enriched population with higher probability of NASH to motivate physicians. I point out this will be easier to do in the U.S. where electronic health records are standard and ALT is part of the standard blood panel, but less so in the rest of the world where neither of those conditions are true. Donna agrees, and she points out that this increases dramatically the need for medical stakeholders and drug and diagnostic companies to energize physicians practices to identify the patients they'll want to treat when a drug is approved before the approval actually happens so that we are organized on approval day. As we wrap up, I asked Donna my six-point scale question about enthusiasm where one is thoroughly depressed and six is over the moon. She scores herself five because she's concerned that we may not organize around regulatory science in a way that makes the data, which she describes as undeniable, approval, which is not yet, in her mind, inevitable. I have the good fortune to speak weekly with industry executives and academic researchers in unscripted, unrecorded settings. This conversation should bring you some of that feeling as these individuals went home to take lessons from NASHTAG for their own work and their own companies. Their perspectives are thoughtful and different, so just sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. I thought the idea that we had 200,000 ICD-10 codes according to QVIA and you would have imputed 16 million is pretty breathtaking. Frankly, to me, that was more breathtaking than the idea that the codes were coming from primary care and not hepatology. To me, that that was a secondary thought, which is if nobody's looking for it, no one's going to get to a hepatologist. Donna Cryer. And I think we have to, you know, and hopefully this is what an FDA-approved drug will do, create this shift. Right now, I feel as if nobody really wants NASH patients, particularly if you're F to F, F3. Primary care doesn't want you because they're overwhelmed and they feel like there's nothing that they can really do and you won't lose weight anyways, which I think is giving a lot of short shrift to patients and is missing an opportunity to have, have people connected to care, ready and waiting for a drug to come on the market. Endocrinology, I think, is stepping up, but not every patient has diabetes you know, and there's so few endocrinologists. And so that's not where every everybody is not going to be touched or benefit from that. And then hepatologists, is like, we don't really want, it's an unnecessary referral. I won't say whose slide that was in, you know, unless you're very sick or have complications or complicated issues, um, hepatology doesn't really want you. And that may be appropriate given how few hepatologists there actually are. But for the patient, that leaves us with nobody really wants us. And so when we talk about, well, why don't you focus on patient education and identification? And I was like, there, there is a role for that. But my concern and the reason I'm so focused on getting the physician side 
right and appropriately cultivated and aware and educated and all of those things and the clinical pathways, you know, simplified is that for many patients, if they went to their primary care doctor today, that doctor might not know about NASH or might downplay it. Oh, it's just a, you know, a little fatty liver. It's not really something to worry about or give misleading or mistaken, you know, oh, it doesn't amount to anything. Come back in two years, if come back ever even. So it would do more harm than good to send most patients into doctor's offices today until there is that agreement, that commitment by all of the places that patients would go, that this is something serious and this is what we'll do for you based on characteristics or profile that we can create through non-invasive technologies and as well as family history and things like that. So I think that until we have that commitment in, in the same way I talk about having an FDA, a regulatory partner committed to following through on what we've agreed on until we have a clinical community committed to not turn naffled patients away. I really am reluctant to send too many people there. Here's the dilemma on that one, right? If patients don't show up, clinicians will not be motivated to learn as readily. But if they show up, if too many show up too soon, then you have the problem you just described. By the way, in the U.S. where everybody has EHR, pretty much everybody has EHR, that's a more solvable problem because you can at some point in time simply, particularly in the, in the health systems, push back into EHR and figure out who was there that we should have looked at that we've missed. Once you leave the U.S., where people don't do ALTs in a standard blood panel, a, a lot of medical records are still on paper. That becomes infinitely harder everywhere else in the world. We can give up tape measures and, and have everybody do waist circumference. Yeah, I know. You, you said that before, and I think that, I think that's right, but it's not quite the same thing, right? And you certainly can't go backwards. I mean, the phrase they used to use in 2016, thanks, Obama. I mean, the, the medical records were Obamacare. EHR was Obamacare. So that, I think, is a thanks, Obama, actually, but a, a true thanks, Obama, as compared to the, the skeptical way people used to use that phrase. As a GAO appointee to the HIT Policy Committee under President Obama, I know that very well. And I, I think EHRs and patient information goes a long ways. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I hear very clearly is we should learn the lessons from insert patient community that does it better than us. One of the lessons that we learned from hepatitis C is the power of care cascades and alerts. We see some of the VA system having FIB4s available, the ways that we can have the new updated guidelines coded into EHR systems. And yes, those patients that qualify for at-risk NASH really being made forward to a physician through their EHR to be called in, to be screened, to be treated will by necessary be a big part of this. I think that when I hear the debate between general screening versus at-risk screening, some of the arguments are, 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 are say, because of cost. I don't think it's really it. I think it is more that most physicians, even most nurses, most practitioners are not yet convinced of NASH and NAFLD. And so it doesn't do us any good to do broader screening where they might have a chance to say, see, we knew it really didn't exist versus having enriched populations, at least at first, so that the numbers that we know will be so overwhelming that they will be convincing to people who are 
are new to this field and will be quite undeniable that, that something needs to be done. So I just think we need to be truthful about why we're doing these strategies the way we are. First of all, cost is reflection of value, right? So when somebody says something costs too much, what they're really telling you is it doesn't bring enough value. And that can be seven different kinds of skepticism, but we kind of have to work on all of those. That there are therapies that are valued, that this disease is going to get to a bad place for an awful lot of people. And or, or actually several different bad places. If, if all we're focusing on is who gets the cirrhosis, as bad as cirrhosis is, we're giving lots of people a chance to poo-poo longer. As if we do, fibrosis has its own issues. In fact, even NAFLD has its own issues. And, and, and bringing that into things like cardiovascular and endocrinology, it's cardiovascular, obviously, that people care about. I agree with that. That makes sense. How do you do that? If you had to pick one initiative that you're either working on or can envision that would move the ball way up the field on that, what would that initiative look like? Well, I think it's if we could be even more expansive with International Nash Day in the community, if every hospital and every company that's in the space as an employer with all of their employees did events, made it normalized, customary, top of mind. I'm sure that many of these physicians, probably even those at Adversity have of patients of great renown and celebrity within their patient groups. And yet they aren't you know, connected with advocacy to do PSAs and to make this something that would actually reduce the stigma far more than any name change. And so I think that instead of just thinking that we could shame advocacy into being bigger and better and more effective, we could support it. And everybody can think about what is something that they could do within their sphere of influence to really put this on the map and on the radar. We'll be educating a new Congress is one of the conversations I was having today with Team GLI. We will be doing things on state and regional levels. We are you know, strategizing with heads of gastroenterology and hepatology about how to be more forward within their institutions so they get the attention and the resources that they need. I have conversations about how to add more liver health and navigators from the advanced providers and nurses so that there are those resources within within health systems. And I think it takes all those things that we have on our NASH scorecard. There needs to be just a bigger engine behind them than that we currently that we currently possess. And the concern I have and, and have had consistently over this time gosh, we created the, the Nash Council in 2017, I guess six years ago at this point. And as much as we put out the message of we need to be prepared this far ahead for this, the tendency of this field to want in real time action, to only focus on I'm recruiting for my clinical trial and that's what I want to do, or I'm doing this or whatever, instead of helping to prepare for the future, which is now, it's been disconcerting. We've been working on several things to prepare the patient community for the HTA space and for potentially an, an, an advisory committee and, and the after effects of that for some months. But I feel that it won't be until the week after uh, you know, an ad comment schedule. Can you send some patients? Well, you know, yes, but that's because we've been doing this work for months. And so I just want the field to really think about and focus on, are all these offices prepared to have NASH patients? It's not as if we want to turn around and say to them the day after a drug is approved, okay, now start identifying and treating NASH patients. Those patients should be connected to care today. 
away so that they will be in a place they would have already been assigned, you know, if they can lose weight to lose weight, they would have already have, you know, demonstrated and documented, you know, success or failure on that in anticipation of potentially going on drug, or they would have done one of a thousand different evaluations and be set up for success. And all of that needs to happen now, not the day after a drug is approved. So Donna, I just felt like your Equinox trainer listening to you tell me at the same time that I've got to go faster. I've got to bend deeper. I've got to carry more weight. I've got to show more perfect form and I have to do more reps. Not surprisingly, you and I could talk all day. So I want to try to move this on to a couple of questions so that we can wrap it up eventually. Last year, I asked everybody coming out of Nashtag on a one to six scale, where one is thoroughly depressed and six is over the moon, where they rated themselves on two issues. One is the vitality of the market. And the second is the easier difficulty of getting a drug to market. Where would you rate yourself right now? Five. Then the typical marketing research follow-up is why not a six? Why not a four? I know the steps that we need to do to be successful. I'm confident in my team's ability to get it done. I, I just, I am hopeful that we'll have the support necessary to be able to do it. Is it entirely about the support that you get or is some of it about your ability to educate people to do what they need to do, even if it's not with you in the field? Yes, it's more of alignment. It's more of a alignment. It's everybody sort of understanding the assignment and sticking the landing. Okay, so then what does a five mean to you then? A five, mean, a five means to me that we have everything that we would need. If we would do it, we have everything here now. So whereas, we, honestly, we didn't before, you know, NITs were not as involved. There were a lot of different parts that were not as mature as they are now, even if we technically did meet the agreed upon goal. So I think today we really, going into this year, it's really quite undeniable. And yet I know enough and I'm experienced enough to know that that does not make it inevitable. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation. Or if that doesn't work, send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with our first non-Nash tag content of 2023. So until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.